Father in heaven, we approach you this morning with uh, eager anticipation of worshiping you next hour. We ask you for your spirit, Lord, to give us the ability to do so rightly. Open our hearts and minds as we discuss your word and your movings and actions throughout history. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So at the end of last week, we were actually kind of touching on the schism and the end of uh, the the beginning of the Crusades with the end of kind of the separation of man, just start and restart so we'll just go back to the notes I can't recall exactly where I ended that last week, it just seems to be a blur but uh, we touched briefly, uh, briefly on the iconic controversy, and we talked on Charlemagne becoming the new Holy Roman Emperor, and a fellow named Vladimir. So, if I couldn't remember, then maybe y'all could, but essentially we had a, a situation where we have this evolution of the Roman Empire moving to Turkey full-time, and the influx of Germanic tribes influencing and in, in other British tribes uh, taking a role as well in the European theater. At that time also we had the Muslims moving upward across northern Africa and into Spain and up into France. We, we heard about Charlemagne's grandfather, the hammer, putting a stop to him and largely saving Europe, although the Muslims would, in fact, uh, maintain a presence in Europe, uh, constantly raiding and even at one point in time cutting off Italy from much of Europe in, in the Alps passes. And so for a great deal of time, we had a very uh, disjointed group. We talked a lot about monks last time, where... The influence that they had on the on the modern church of the day, and, and the influence that they are still having on us today. Um, I don't remember if you guys had uh, how much we had really talked about the Kievan Rus Empire, which was this empire that Vladimir had started, and was largely propped up initially by the Byzantine Empire. So they had this fellow coming down, invading into their area, that essentially, by marriage, they formed a, a union with and ended up co-oping the entire uh, Kivian Rus Empire to become a, a largely, at the beginning, uh, just kind of a puppet Christian religion empire. But eventually it appears that Vladimir did actually take to it to the point of, uh, this was a story where he essentially got all of Kiev and marched them down to the river and had a mass baptism, which was a very interesting uh, event when you think about how their perceptions were of baptism. Uh, we look at Constantine and his early uh, assumptions on baptism was that it was regenerative and that he should wait. And it's evolving now to where you do have this, as soon as you believe you should be 
And it's, for a large part, you see the difference is kind of teetering back and forth depending upon where you're at in the Christian world as that position. We, uh, we still have, today, issues of credo versus paedo-baptism. So it's, again, interesting to see how some things don't really change. They just continue to be uh, debated. And so... Part of the discussion we had was on the schism itself for the addition of the filioque, which was that clause that added the son to the creed that we, we profess ourselves, and the difficulty that that caused between the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire. Both sides felt like uh, they had the right to do it. Leo felt like, well, we're still working with Arianism. We're struggling with the people not quite understanding what's going on here. So by just adding this one word, we'll be able to clarify this. But at the same time, politics began to be introduced where the European sector, or the, I'm sorry, the Eastern sector rather, uh, felt like, well, you can't change anything until we've had a, an actual council or we're all there. And that was where we had briefly mentioned that we had Leo sending his delegates to Constantinople, then being received, and effectively having a, uh, a debate that had both sides angry at each other and was largely attributed to the schism that caused the break between the four seas of the east and the Roman sea on the west. And to this day, we still have that schism. Uh, one of the interesting things last night that I was speaking with John a moment ago about was this autocephalous Orthodox Church of America. That was a weird word to me, autocephalous, but it meant that it was a self-selecting head or patriarch in the United States. And so of the Orthodox churches in that region, they essentially said, let's go ahead and, and create our own region and eventually they were granted that autonomy by the Russian church that they originally came out of. And uh, so they're back up to five, but uh, minus the one here. So was there any other thoughts on the filioque that you guys, we, we spoke about it, I guess, almost two weeks ago, perhaps, but it was a, it was and still is a, a thing we have people today that there's a website about removing the filioque, trying to reunite the church. Uh, sadly, it appears that they didn't pay their domain fees, and so many of their pages are no longer available. But uh, if you go to the time machine, you can take a look at that. So, Beginning today, we'll, we'll start looking largely at somewhat the, the Crusades in the monasteries. We, we spoke of the, the different uh, monks and how we started all this, and there will be several more that we'll mention today. And for a large part, we have a new Roman uh, emperor that's paired with a new pope that feels very much in control of that side of things. And so there's hand and glove working together. The um, uh, 
So if we, if we pick up in the timeline, it would typically be kind of right there at the end of the, uh, the, the first part of the 11th century. And so in that 1058 time frame was whenever we had the, yeah, 1054 was when they actual had the, the schism occur, and then the Crusades begin. We have so much, uh, so many dates there. But too many pages. I wanted to speak momentarily about the beginnings of that and how I'm struggling to find my my notes. But it was a papal decree. A, the Pope essentially came and said that we have people that are invading the Holy Lands and we need to do something about it. They had a request from the Byzantine Emperor. For assistance and they decided to grant that assistance they were having some trouble because of the feudal system in Europe to where these kingdoms were getting antsy they were getting all these knights and they were basically uh, beginning to start picking at each other and so it was seen somewhat politically expedient to go ahead and, and do something about those Muslims that were invading and and well they they had combined the political state with the church in such a way that it was expedient for them, and and so we had that that first uh, that first request come down, and so it was not very successful. The very first one was announced, and there were actually untrained people that decided they would try and uh, and go and help, as it were. And so, there we go. They called it the the uh, the, the peasants or the peop or the children's crusade because they left at the very beginning and were largely uh, defeated throughout their efforts. They they did not return, and so by the end of that summer, in 1096, there had been quite a few uh, people depart but that never came back. And that kind of brings us to the, the first of our fellows that we'll be discussing, and that would be Anselm of, uh, of Canterbury. But um, I guess a little disjointedly, we'll talk about Bernard of Clairvaux, because he was the voice of the, of the Pope for this pronouncement to go. And as... One of his, if you translate it, it says, Pagans must not be slain if there may be any other means to prevent them from oppressing the faithful. However, it is better they should be put to death than that the rod of the wicked should rest on the lot of the righteous. The righteous fear no sin in killing the enemy of Christ. Christ's soldier can securely kill and more safely die. When he dies, it profits him when he slays, it profits Christ. And so, I, that was one of those striking comments to me, whenever you look at the, the difference between the, the message we have of Christ and the message we have of the church at that time. And the way they were getting these people to go as well were through indulgences. This was the beginning of the challenge of the papal indulgence. And so uh, 
we'll come back to uh, Bernard in, in, a, in a moment, but uh, I just think that if you look at the, the spiritual weapons the Lord has given us, of faith, love, and, and hope, and, and just perseverance in Him, it's, it's striking that they are, there was such a difference between them. And so... Well, and, and I'm wondering if the influences crossed over at some point in history at that point or something weird. I think it's just a, uh, I wish I was better schooled to be able to, to give you more than just my opinion, but my opinion is very much that, that we have this, this sad distortion of the joining of the church and state and the fact that if you're not for Christ, then you're then you're better off to be slain unless we could force you. And so we have, you know, we talked about in the men's study a little bit, the apologetics that seem to be coming out of the age right now where everyone's apologizing for a past thing. And the Crusades are, I'm sure, one of the things that we could be asked to apologize for as, as members, but it's not Christianity any more than... than uh, some of the things that are being said about the Muslims and that. But there is a difference in the fact that our text truly does say not to do that. So, but, um, so the, the other thing that I think is notable in that first crusade is that they came through and they really did not uh, differentiate between the Jewish populace that was there and the existing Christian populace that was there. So the Coptic Christians and the other Christians that were living in the area frequently were not spared because they were not apparent. Which again speaks to the, the horrors of the time with that. So, But there would be, depending upon your count, nine crusades. All of which were largely unsuccessful in the fact that they really did nothing more than to... Uh, build up some kingdoms, and temporarily displace others. And we have uh, just a, a great deal of, of bloodshed on both sides. And so, um, but I would, I guess, point to the fact that you have a, a Muslim that does take Jerusalem, and it changes hands like four times before finally staying where it's at. But but each of those times is a different party coming to the table. And we will have a discussion about uh, Francis of Assisi, who is involved in these crusades as well, in a very different way that I'd like to contrast from what we had Bernard of Clairvaux say. So, um, yep. Yeah. Ten eighty six is the, uh, or is is what, or ten ninety six? Excuse me. Is the is the date? It was about a three year time period, and uh, it was, a, a, almost uh, forty five years later before the second. But um, if you if you have a, a strong penchant for dates, I do have a, a nice list of some of them, but they're. Again, I, I 
I did spend some time digging around in there trying to find unique things about each crusade that was worthy of, of discussion. But sadly, I just kept coming back to the same point that there were different people involved and different people in charge and there wasn't a great deal of redemption. It was mainly, uh, again, kingdoms being formed and uh, destroyed. So, from a military historian, I suppose there's some benefit to, to looking at them. The, the advent of Greek fire, the, the quantity of the ships, in which it's hard to imagine today us having 1,800 ships uh, you know, the, the battle at Normandy didn't have 1,800 ships. They were bigger, I guess, but maybe it did, actually. But in any event, in my mind, these wooden vessels traveling great distances is remarkable to me. In fact, some of the, one of the highlights of the Second Crusade was actually an English ship coming to the uh, assistance of some of, peop- some of the people in Spain and liberating a portion of Portugal that was was largely attributed to being a success. And so, it's again, you think about, though, you have these, the, the French, uh, the, the French, the Franks, French fries, but uh, anyway, that's from a reference of the Better Off Dead movie. But uh, there's just, the, the Italian forces, the French forces, and the English forces are trying to do this thing that they've been told by the Pope is a, is a holy crusade and effort and for a large part the people are truly inspired in that first one it is horrible to them that the birthplace and the 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 resurrection location have been fallen into in their minds uh, infidel hands and so, so they were to, we, we're, we're discussing we don't know what the crusades are about so they're trying to build a church by killing everybody else I'm sorry that's uh, I guess it would be better for me to 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 frame it a little better. So if you consider the fact that Jerusalem is a, is a city that's largely been a part of a lot of battles. The Romans had it. They tore down Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then it remained in firmly their hands and others until today, where we're still seeing battles occur there. But the, the actual um, crusades were the Christians that were in the western portion of the empire wanting to liberate the formerly Christianized Jerusalem and the Holy Lands. And so they saw that it had fallen to the, uh, the Islamic forces that came up from Saudi Arabia, and they took all the way up to the very bottom, Antioch fell. It was now part of the Muslim uh, community. And so just the, the Turkish peninsula the autumn, or not the uh, Byzantine Empire, which was the eastern side of the empire, was still left. So they kept requesting assistance from the west until essentially they saw what happened in the first one. And in the second crusade, the eastern empire actually brought in some forces from another group to try to protect and fend off the others. And so it's a very... It's, it's like that place is where uh, Christ was crucified. We should own that. Okay. And was it not and also about, because pilgrims were making pilgrimages to those sites, and they wanted to pre- preserve their ability to do that. Well, and there's also the, the uh, rise of reliquy, where basically the importance of artifacts 
had become a, an industry. And so this location that they largely, um, yeah. Well, I was just going to add, don't underestimate the degree to which Islam is expanding. Mm -hmm. And they're going to continue to expand until they finally take Constantinople in 1453. Uh, they're going to be at the gates of Vienna in the 17th to the 16th century. Mm -hmm. um, and so th there's this huge push of Islam towards Europe. And it is, in some ways, a serious threat. And so they have to push back against it. So there's a... Well, there's a political theory, right, that we should uh, re re repel that. But there's also the, a theory that whether it was whomever was there, that as Christians we would persevere and it would be okay. And so... Well, which is, well the other side of that is if you get taken over, you're a second-class citizen or forced to convert. Yeah. And so, in Islam, doesn't their whole success hinge on a caliphate, right? Obtaining yeah. physical land mass, like physical land. Yeah, and if we, if we looked at the map from a couple of weeks ago, you did see there was a very large influx of that. But at that time, the, the Christians and Jews enjoyed a and actually esteemed status. They were not being persecuted. They were not forced to convert. They were actually an added, they were given a tax that they paid and they did not have to fight for the caliphate. And so, ironically, again, politics became a thing and we have people that want to control different aspects of it. I completely concur with Kevin's comment about, well, it is a real threat. Islam is coming into the European sector and uh, that's why you do have the Germans, the actual people that we had uh, Charlemagne fighting against, end up eventually repelling the Islamic forces on the uh, western side, or yeah, the, the eastern side of Europe. But in, in any event, you, you see this, this eventual uh, control bubble that, that stabilizes, and Europe, for a large part, continues to have Islamic forces invade and recede and are repelled. Uh, eventually the Mongols, uh, Genghis Khan, show up and, and cause much of that to no longer be an issue because a stronger force arrives. But, uh, so, so we had the, uh, those monasteries establishing themselves and for a large part, they're creating universities now to where uh, education is becoming a thing. We have people actually being given time to contemplate and to record and to write down this theology that we today look back on as being great works and studies. And so Anselm of Canterbury was one such fellow that came out of Italy and into France, into a little uh, place called Beck. And he was born in 1033, so this is before the First Crusade. And in the, in the course of his life, he is influenced by a fellow named Lanfranc. And Lanfranc is actually uh, the fellow that is tapped to become the first uh, Archbishop of Canterbury after the French, or the Normans, conquer Europe. So, or conquer uh, England. So if you've heard of uh, basically William I, they started naming things uh, after they had too many of them. 
but he basically becomes uh, the king of England and asks Lanfranc to come become his archbishop over there, allowing Anselm to become the, the actual bishop there in his monastery in Normandy. And so while he was there, he's, he's one of the fellows that actually wrote a couple of things, the monologian and the proslogian. These are these texts that uh, I was impressed about, the fact that, have, have any of you guys read the screw tape letters? Many of us have, right? I was very uh, enthralled as a youth with this aspect of the dialogue between two people going back and forth, despite the fact they were demons. Well, uh, in Anselm's time, he wrote this 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 actual uh, text, the and it's uh, the translation would would somewhat be "Why the God Man," but it's "Cure uh, Dus Homo," which was a dialogue between himself and a person named Basso. And so this Basso fellow is is asking questions, and Anselm is responding to them in a very short manner. But it's essentially the why did we need there to be a God-man? And if you you can read through the English version of it on Wikipedia pretty easily. It's It's available, but... It is essentially, again, one of those dialogues where I was like going, oh, well, I had always thought C.S. Lewis was extremely creative and inventive to come up with this format. But it was actually a format that many of them used then to try and help people see both sides of an argument and, and come to a conclusion. And so in this dialogue, we have him trying to get this Basso fellow to actually uh, come to the understanding of what the problem is with sin. And if you go through the whole thing, it's, a, it's the story we're all very custom and familiar with. The issue of sin and, and the, the need for there to be some way to have it removed from us. And so, I've, I've again, found that to be very interesting. And I don't know if, have any of you uh, read any of those older guys? Uh, I'm sure that'll be a, a term later that'll be very popular. The older guys from, from the Middle Ages. But... Uh, if, if not, it, it's, it's not expensive to, to read it for free on the, uh, the web. But uh, again, he was the, one of the beginnings of people recording these, these ideas, and they became very uh, widespreadly uh, handed around. But later in his life, uh, we have Lanfranc die, and then Anselm is asked to come follow him again and become the Archbishop of Canterbury. And during some difficulties with Rome... The kings there uh, have him both exiled and returned. And during that exile, those exiled periods is whenever he wrote most prolifically. About the time of that first crusade, we also have a fellow named Peter Abelard show up. And he was a French uh, theologian. And many of us, uh, for my ear, a lot of these names are like, oh, I've heard of those names. But uh, I wasn't really familiar with with why or what was going on. And in fact, I confused Peter Abelard with another fellow, Peter Lombard, frequently. But uh, in this case, uh, Abelard will be discussing about the fact that uh, he held a view that was largely different from Anselm's. And so he was um, assuming that because of the actual weight of the understanding of what the Lord did, that that in and of itself should be enough to force us to respond in faith. 
not that we were actually changed, but that we would realize this. And so he was some of a, a little bit more, this would be my term, more rational in his approach, thinking he was, he was going to help people realize why we should be Christians. And so I found that to be very unusual whenever you, that uh, it wasn't so much that we were looking to Christ to pay the debt, but we were just so overwhelmed by his actions that we would be uh, there. And so those constructs that he came up with largely uh, don't explain satisfactorily the, the, the actual atonement on the Christ, and so cross rather, by Christ. And so that's one of the reasons why he is also known for uh, a relationship he had with, a, with a, a nun. So that would be the other place you guys probably might have heard of him. But uh, the other fellow, Peter Lombard, on the other hand, the other guy, wrote a document that we call the Sentences today. Uh, it, there, it's a Latin term, and it, it was, there are four of them that have been compiled. And for a large part, it was an early forebearer of uh, theological textbooks. People like Martin Luther would have read these and would have responded to portions of them in order to receive his, uh, his actual um, master's thesis on, on to become a theologian. And so I found it interesting that we have this other fellow in Paris that, that wrote these, uh, these essentially gathering all the sayings that had come out of Augustine or any of the other theologians of the age and compiling them into a single source. And those are again available today. Uh, Ironically, they're mainly produced by the Catholic Church, and because of the lack of, I guess, interest, they, they go for like $200 on, on Amazon because they're just not printed that much anymore. But uh, if, you were, if you were currently uh, going into that side, that might be something you would have to acquire. And so, now we, we're back to Bernard of Clairvaux. He was... Uh, he was born in 1090, and largely uh, he was the, the founding uh, fellow at, uh, at the Clairvaux Monastery in 1115. And so if you look at the, he's about 60 some odd years old in his lifespan. So he, he didn't live really long, but he had a very large uh, impact on us today. He was quoted by John Calvin, and there's, a, in my mind, a very big disparity between his actions and this sell of, sell, the sale of indulgences than his writings. There's, there's a disconnect in my brain whenever I, I see some of those things. But um, he was very much a supporter of the, of the faith alone, the sole fide aspect that uh, we see Martin Luther describe in, in his writings. And um, there was also a lot of early writings on the alien righteousness, which some of us like, oh, what are you, you know, alien righteousness, but that's that we don't have a righteousness, that that righteousness was given to us by Christ. And so a lot of the work that was done for that was uh, quoted from him in those early days. And so in my mind, it's like, well, the fellow's not all bad. He had some, some good ideas too, but I just kind of regret the fact that he literally led that, that march around the kingdoms of Europe to gather folk to, to go. And so I guess that's just a, my personal 
my personal opinion on that. So uh, late, later, we would have Martin Luther write of him, saying that, that Bernard actually did love Jesus as much as anyone can. And so, to me, that was a fairly high uh, level of esteem for the man. And um, there was just an awful lot of bickering going on in the kingdom at that time, because that was one of the things Abelard, the, the fellow we mentioned first, the first Peter we mentioned, was not a fan of Bernard. Yes? I want to have a question. I go back to the indulgences. Okay. Did they start those to raise money for the crusades? Yes, largely they were, they were a method of gathering uh, tithes and in, in for papal needs. And the crusades were one of the larger needs that they chose to use those on. Yeah, several several hundred years. In fact, that's one of the things that Martin Luther would later be asking for reform. And today we'll speak a little bit about uh, John Huss and uh, John Wycliffe, that they too were very unhappy about these indulgences. And and I was going to say it's that's still it's largely the the difficulty that we'll see, and we're finally almost there, and why we're going to need to change this, the attribution of our works having something to do with our salvation, at that time, was to the extent that they were even doing it for the dead, and so they still do that. We still have the the uh, the efforts made for those that have passed, and so that's. That's just not a thing. But, um, so all that was occurring, all those folks were alive before we actually ended up having um, the conclusion of that second crusade. And so that second crusade did show up, and a new pope, Pope Eugene III, was the one that, that again, tapped a, a Bernard to redo his circuit to try and gain uh, support. And he was very successful at that. And so, um, at that, uh, we also ended up, let's go fast forward just a little bit to 1137. There was a fellow named Saladin. So we, we talked about Muhammad previously. Well, Saladin was another great caliphate. And he is one of the ones largely responsible for the, the expansion of the Islamic area. And he is the one that captured Jerusalem. And so... Whenever you have the original uh, capturing of it, 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 again, it goes back and forth. And finally, uh, one more time, Richard the Lionheart, which many of us remember the Lionheart guy from, from movies we may have seen growing up, captured it and then yet again lost it again. So we, we just that, that city has been uh, fought over for quite a while. And at this, at this time during that second um, period, we have a monk that is born uh, Giovanni di Petrio di Bernardoni, that we know him all as uh, Francis. And Francis of Assisi was uh, essentially a fellow in the military that heard a good sermon and realized that he needed to change his lifestyle. And so he 
abandoned his, uh, his current walk of uh, career and became a, a monk and largely founded this uh, first order of uh, the Friars of Minor. So he was very much into trying not to be in the limelight, trying to lower the, uh, the interest on him. And yet he was overly successful in the fact that his order grew to such a, such a large size that he ended up having to uh, shorten his trip to the Middle East to come back and try to get it back in order. So the part that I was interested in with him was that he actually went to Jerusalem and they had negotiated the ability for pilgrims to still visit the city. So at this time, there were people still going there, even though it wasn't in Christian hands. And he was trying to negotiate this kind of a, a, a better relationship in truce when he is recalled because the, the quantity of his folk, if they're, they're not at that time a recognized order from the church, and so he has to go back and actually make them into a recognized order. So, uh, Matthew 10 was the, the, the section that he was listening to, and, and it basically was what caused him to look for simplicity, and uh, he preached a great deal of repentance. And if you look at the message that was being served up from the day, he was kind of a dissident voice. And in 1219, so this was, again, a little bit, we're finally in the, the 12th or the 13th century, we, we see him actually in Egypt attempting to get that uh, sultan of the time to convert to Christianity. And so I find it very interesting that people gave people the time of day whenever you, you're a ruler of this. It's interesting to me to think that a fellow can show up from a distant land and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus, and that he would listen to him. And in fact, depending upon who you listen to, the sultan actually did at supposedly one point in time have a deathbed conversion, but that could have largely been another one of those uh, fire insurance type things where he was just trying to prevent if there was any truth to it from it going there. So the the things that he brought back were... uh, that simplicity and a fun fact, uh, Bonaventure was a, another monk that was at the end of uh, Francis's life. In his uh, biography, he actually speaks to the fact that Francis went to the Pope in 1223 and got permission to set up the first live nativity scene. And so the one that we all think of, the, the ox and the ass with the the three wise men were was first put forth in this cave up in uh, Italy. Uh, and so it's kind of, I found that to be a little humorous to me, that that uh, one of the things we can attribute that is so widely popular nowadays uh, is was from him. And another fellow that we, I'll, I will probably, we're going to not do much discussion of Thomas Aquinas. He was a, Another writer of that age that it I couldn't do. His writings were were, were remarkable in the in the fact that the impact they had. But uh, I want to skip over to John Wycliffe so that we can start 
getting closer to the Reformation. And he was a Yorkshireman that was in the 1330 born. And at this time, we've had a lot of the, the church has, has actually finally uh, codified a lot of the beliefs. The, the, the churches are, are widely, for the large part, saying the same thing coming out of Rome, but it's not meshing with the more educated individual's understanding of the Bible. And so John Wycliffe actually went to school at Oxford and became a master at that Beloyal College, which is where you, that was the second step there, if you were going to become a, a, a truly educated man of the day. And he was a true scholar. And basically he became very concerned about the influence the church was having on politics and the fact that the, that the governments were having an equally damaging effect on the church. And so church corruption was kind of his first drum he was beating. And he started arguing against the separation of the secular power from the church. And you can imagine in, in England, where you have a king and you have these lords, that that was pretty popular. I mean, you have a fellow essentially saying it, the church shouldn't own lands, the church should just be the church, and that the land should be part of the people. And so because of this uh, discussion, he's not popular at all with the Pope, and he is uh, being protected somewhat by the lords of his, of his area. Some of the other things that were... Uh, that we would, we would know him. Most of us here are familiar with his name because of the Bible translation facility here nearby. But there's a good reason for it being named that because one of his other central things he wanted to do was to get a translation of the Latin Vulgate Bible into English so that people would be able to read it. People couldn't read, largely, but if it were widely available, he felt like it would have a a influence that would uh, improve the 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 just the general order of the people, and so some of the things he was really upset about was he uh, essentially argued that the Pope had no more authority than any other minister, and so you can imagine that won him lots of points. He also argued that the bishops themselves should, in fact, just be pastors; that they shouldn't be. Uh, this middle tier, he was really against indulgences and any type of confession to the priests themselves. He felt that the gospel itself provided deliverance from the penalty of sin. And he was one of the earlier folks to, or we'll call him, he's one of the more known names that repudiated the, uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation of the, of the communion. And so... When you look at his, his work in retrospect, uh, he had a fairly large impact on a lot of the writings that would later impact folks like Luther and a fellow named John Huss. And so John Huss was a Czech that largely read the writings of Wycliffe, ingested them, enjoyed them, and began preaching in, uh, as he was a rector in his own college, and later uh, was the attention was brought of him to the church in Rome, and they commanded him to cease. He did not, 
and he later would be uh, burned at the stake for his beliefs. And so we can uh, we can see that I've never heard of a group called the Lollards before, but they were a group of Christians that followed after Wycliffe's beliefs that were largely thought to be, if you've read the Puritan's Progress, the prototype for that that uh, the actual uh, oh the parson in the Canterbury Tales. I'm sorry, not Pilgrim's Progress, but in the Canterbury Tales. And so, um, in my mind, whenever I think of a monk, I think of that coarse brownish gray robe, and that was the robe that was popularized by them. Um, typically, the other robes we see were black or were a nicer fabric. So, but um, so we'll. We'll touch next week, we'll finally be in the Reformation, but we'll start picking up with some of the things that we have, like, uh, that we're being taught. The, the doctrine of transubstantiation for communion, I had largely attributed that to being a, one of Luther's, and he was, he did actually, uh, you know, we, we know him for that. But it's nice to know that it wasn't just him, there was a large number of people at that day that were concerned with that. And we also, I didn't realize that banging your complaints up against the door of wherever you were complaining was a thing. That was actually another thing that Wycliffe had done with some of his statements where it was more like posting. Well, Martin Luther's was fairly dramatic, I guess, but, but that was another thing. So we'll, we'll pick up briefly with Huss next week, but uh, right into the, into some discussions of the Reformation and be able to start, uh, getting into grounds that we we're probably a little bit more familiar with but in closing i i just think that if we look at the lifestyles of uh, francis of assisi and the desire to become more simplistic we see that today a large number of our youth look for this uh difference from the from the the current norm and uh, that's one aspect that if we do return to i'm okay with we don't have to be in charge necessarily to to be successful Christians. We're fortunate in the land we live in today that we can meet here without any fear of them coming in the doors at the moment. But that isn't the case around the world. And if it's not the case here in the future, you know, we will be, we'll be okay since we're under a different ruler. So shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the gift that you've given to us to be your children. We ask you, Lord, to uh, prepare our hearts to worship you, and we pray, Lord, for those that are traveling right now, that they return safely with us tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.